The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker. We've been talking about music therapy. We just listened to an interview with Cynthia Griggs. And in studio right now, we're talking to Dr. Brian Hunter, who's professor of music therapy and chair of the Department of Creative Arts Therapy in the School of Health and Human Services at Nazareth College in Pittsburgh, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester, New York. He's on the visiting faculty of the University of Rochester. He's been an adjunct associate professor at the Eastman School of Music an assistant instructor at the University of Kansas and Maryville University. He was appointed by the Board of Regents to the State of New York Board for Mental Health Practitioners and was chair of that particular group. And in the American Music Therapy Association, formerly the National Association for Music Therapy, he's been on the board of directors for 26 of the past 28 years. He served as president, president-elect, immediate past president, speaker of the Assembly of Delegates, acting executive director, historian, parliamentarian, and received a Lifetime Achievement Award from them. Also here is his wife, Leslie Hunter, who is a board-certified music therapist. She is presently retired as a music therapist. She was clinical training director for music therapy interns at the Monroe No. 1 BOCES School District in Fairport, New York. She's an associate professor at the University of Rochester Eastman School of Music and has been a visiting professor at Nazareth College, University of Kansas, and Maryville University. She served on the board of directors for certification for music therapists and was president of the Mid-Atlantic Region of the National Association of Music Therapy. Welcome to In Tune, Leslie and Brian. Thanks for having us here, Arnold. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. You heard the interview with with Cindy. And and Brian, you have kind of an association with Cindy, don't you? Well, yes. Uh, And with Maryville, I was actually uh, the second uh, graduate of that program. I entered there as a student in 1974 and uh, was the second alum of of that brand new, what was a brand new program at that time. And how, how large was the faculty? The, the full-time faculty consisted of one of those sisters, uh, <laughs> Sister Ruchian, that Cynthia mentioned earlier. Uh, and then, um, as far as music therapy faculty goes, I'm the second sister, Sister Harriet Padberg, uh, who also taught music, uh, who helped administer and develop the program, later became a music therapist herself, and in her retirement from the university, did a lot of music therapy work in the community. They, they have both since passed away, but they were great ladies. Now, did they relate to you their origins or excitement about music therapy and why they really wanted to get that going? They they were um, looking into the future uh, at that time, and both of them, Sister, Sister Sheen had a music ed background, Sister Padberg was an organist, and both of them, again, being sisters, services a lot about their life, and as fits the mission of the college, uh, and I think they were just looking forward to the future uh, in terms of programs that would add to and further that mission. And, and they went after and got the program established. Now, let's let's look back. I gave a little brief, just ancillary history of music therapy. What can you tell us about some of the early origins of, of music therapy? So when I talk about the history, I distinguish between the, the notion of music therapy, the profession, which really began in 1950 with the establishment of an association, uh, the National Association for Music Therapy, versus the notion of it being a discipline or an idea or the construct or concepts, 
which, as you mentioned, go all the way back to at least to Plato and Aristotle. And in just about every society and culture that, that we look at, we find, first of all, music is a part of it, regardless of where that is around the world. And then when that, within that, you find music often integrally related and linked to religion and to healing, uh, both very important in the context of culture. So those ideas are, are ancient. You mentioned the, yourself the notion of, of the biblical um, um, occurrences of music therapy. The most well-known one is David playing the harp for King Saul, the first Samuel 16 story, um, in which uh, Saul suffers from evil spirits, according to the text, uh, often thought of as being either epilepsy or perhaps bipolar depression. Um, and David plays the harp for King Saul. What's interesting about that story is it's really a lot more than just the fact that David played the harp and the king felt better. Um, in that story, if you look at those 14 verses, you find, first of all, it was the servants that suggested the idea to, to uh, King Saul. They knew that music, could, it was sort of common, I think, folk knowledge that they knew that music could help him feel better, and they suggested it wasn't, it wasn't uh, his peers who suggested it, it was the servants. And then they wanted to be sure that they had a good harp player. Uh, the word good is mentioned, good musician, good music is mentioned like three times in that, uh, in that chapter. Um, and so they sought somebody who could play well. And then the, the other interesting other piece is that there's a reference to the fact that the king became very fond of David uh, and made him his armor bearer. And what struck me about that is that you don't give your armor to somebody you don't trust, right? And so you sort of have here, <clears throat> excuse me, you sort of have here the three components. You've got a musician, you've got a, uh, a patient with need, you've got an, a relationship, somebody that the patient trusts. And those are all components of, of what we call modern-day music therapy practice. This is it's pretty, pretty interesting to look at. Yeah, and Le- Leslie, I've, I've, <clears throat> that's kind of the th- multiple times I continue to hear this about relationship. And relationship is vital to really gaining trust, as, as Brian was talking about. And expand on that relationship in that music therapy setting because you work with individuals in the school setting. I know you've worked in other settings, but talk about mm-hmm. the school setting with. with sure, that. I'd be happy to. Um, this the relationship aspect of music therapy is such a key component, and I think this is so important for people to understand because sometimes people think, "Well, can't I just pop in a, a CD, or can't I just?" make a playlist on my iPad or my iPhone, and can't I just listen to music and that can help me? Well, certainly music as an ambient sort of thing, that's that's nice, but it's the relationship where you're building a trust relationship with people in the context of a music experience. And I found working with my students, I worked primarily with students that either had a diagnosis of being on the autistic autism spectrum disorder, or students with an emotional problem. And both of those types of kids need to have a capacity to build relationships. And it was in the context of having music therapy that they were able to build that relationship with me. Sometimes I would have students say, the only reason I come to school is because I know I'll see you. Wow is I, I know that I'll be able to be in music therapy with you, or they'll just say music. They A lot of times kids just thought it was music class, but it was really music therapy, because if you're, if you're skillful with it, they don't even know they're working on skills. They think they're just there to learn to play the piano or the guitar, or they're gonna write a song with you on the computer, 
or or they're going to they're going to create music. So um, the relationship is is so very important. So how does that translate when they graduate or when they go to? You know, you were at in the high school level, correct? Mm-hmm. So how does that translate when they graduate and they, and they go out into the world? Well, for a lot of those kids uh, that are older kids, I would try to teach them a skill that then they could use as a leisure time skill when they were older and graduated from high school. So either teaching them guitar or piano. And also, one of the things that I really tried to work with those high school kids is if they had an individual talent on something, but they had difficulty playing music with other people. So I developed several ensembles. We had a rock band. So I had a bassist, I had a rhythm guitarist, I had a drummer, and they had to learn how to work together. And when you're someone who is struggling with being able to control your emotions and and establish relationships with your peers, that was a very uh, that was a very good experience for them. At the very first rehearsal, my bassist sat in the corner with his back to the rest of the group, and I said, "Well, this they, they can hear you, but they can't read your face. They can't know where we're going with this music." And so that was really important for them to develop a skill that's then translated to where you work. I mean, in most work environments, you have to work with people. You don't work as an individual. And so they started developing those skills in the context of a rock band. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to uh, some questions that I had based upon what you were saying. How has COVID-19 impacted the school setting? Obviously, we know things are going to be changing. But as you were talking about that, the interaction, would a quote-unquote Zoom performance be more appropriate for a student like you mentioned, or would they feel more comfortable being able to look at somebody on the screen versus being in in person with them? What are your thoughts with that? I I think that um, this whole episode with COVID-19, which has forced us to go to telehealth and using Zoom and Google Meet and other uh, online platforms, has been there's been different results. I think some people are more comfortable with it because they can see people, but there's that, that maybe their anxiety associated with close proximity to people is dissipated. But I think for other people, they miss that being in the same room. Um, I was just walking along the Erie Canal in Fairport and there was a jazz group. They were playing in their backyard. They were six feet apart, but they they wanted to be together. You could you could tell that. But in terms of telehealth, um, my experience in supervising students at Nazareth College has been that we had to actually put together something that our clients could watch and participate in. It wasn't a live event. Other music therapists have had to do live events where they talk to their client and their client has some instruments or some um, access to some musical things, whether it's a guitar or a piano, and to actually work together. Now the sound quality on Zoom has not been the greatest. In terms of my own like personal music, when I sing in my music group for my church, I've had to listen to a track on my earbuds, sing my piece, into a microphone, record it, and then it's put together. It's edited so that it looks like I've been singing with these other people. That's that's it's pretty complicated. It's 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 time consuming too, but uh, it gets the job done. It, which which really gets back to this 
relationship, establishing that relationship. And if you're just initiating therapy, I imagine it would be very, very difficult. Yes. Extremely difficult. Yes, it it is difficult, especially if you have to assess somebody. I mean, there's so many body cues we watch when we're assessing a client in terms of their eligibility for music therapy. Cindy, Cynthia Briggs did not really talk too much about that process, but we have a protocol where we have a, a, a referral, then we have an assessment, then we set up goals and objectives, which initiates our treatment plan. We have ongoing data collection. She did mention data. And then we have a periodic evaluation where periodically we're just looking at how are they doing? How is the client doing? Now, Brian, you... What's your really particular area that you are comfortable with working? Is it with adolescents? Is it with, you know, brain-based kind of issues? Is it with um, those who are special education or elderly? So before I went back to graduate school uh, at KU and did our graduate work, I was actually, when I finished up at Maryville, um, I had the opportunity to do a pilot program um, in Pittsburgh that was a, a cooperative program between Maryville and the Forbes Health System. Uh, it was a brand new experimental program at that point in the 70s on developing music therapy in the general hospital system. So I've always had a long-standing love for that and followed that up some years later with research um, in Rochester. I can talk more about that in a moment. But I uh, came back to St. Louis um, in, uh, in 76 and worked for two years um, at the De- St. Louis Developmental Disabilities Treatment Center, which was housed in the State Hospital on Arsenal Street at that time, uh, working with children and adults with developmental disabilities. So that's an area that I'm, I'm very, very, very comfortable with. Um, in Rochester, um, uh, over the past few years, uh, I've, I got to work with um, the University of Rochester Medical Center, Strong Memorial Hospital, and Rochester General Hospital. Uh, in developing programs, music therapy programs in those systems, and they um, both of them had had uh, research components where we were looking at music therapy to help with uh, symptom management, particularly pain and anxiety, um, where we find that music has um, a very potent capability to break what we call sometimes a a, a fear. Uh, tension pain cycle that feeds on itself um, you get a little uptight about something and then you, you your body gets tense and you're anxious and then a pain experience can actually be more pronounced than it actually might need to be because of the the, the anxiety part of that and the tension part of it so music has the ability to interrupt that uh, to calm to keep somebody focused or distracted as the case may be um, and focus on, on something other than, uh, other than what might be causing the pain. Um, and so we, we have seen that our research, along with, with a lot of other research, has shown that music therapy has a huge benefit to that. And we, we use that in a very personal way, following a protocol that was developed at the University of Kansas Medical Center by two ther- music therapists at an OBGYN who developed the protocol for music therapy-assisted labor and delivery. And uh, while I was in graduate school, did, I did a practicum with them, worked with some others in the whole preparation process and, and the labor and delivery. And then Leslie and I put that to very personal use with the, with the birth of both of our daughters, in which um, she was able to use the protocol, uh, having practiced with the music, um, to be able to go through the labor and delivery of both of our daughters without the use of any pain medication. And you probably ought to you know, comment on that, since wow. you were the one who did it, not me. <laughs> 
Yes, I, when we first practiced this protocol with our daughter who was born in 1985, I thought, well, this better work because <laughs> my whole career is based on the, the idea that this is a, a very powerful modality, and it surely was. I took Lama's prepared childbirth class uh, three months before my due date. I practiced every day doing deep breathing, uh, progressive relaxation with music so that when I heard specific music, I was like Pavlov's dog. I completely relaxed because a labor, as most women, if you're women out there listening, you know it isn't one continuous thing. You have a contraction and then you have a break. So it was during those breaks that I could really relax and I was able to do that first delivery without any medication and the second delivery without any medication except Pitocin to induce more labor and i was in labor for 30 hours wow so uh yes if you're a pregnant woman out there and you want to have a more natural childbirth experience i totally recommend music therapy i want to play a little uh clip from the national association and it's about an individual called larry it's hard to determine what exactly happened um all we know is that that day in June, he was having a seizure. I, I don't wish this on anybody because I think it's probably harder in many ways than... Um, I think it's probably like stages of grief. Um, I think you go through anger, um, denial, um, and then acceptance. and. Um, and that, I think I did. I went through all of that. All the things that he had achieved were kind of uh, lost. And um, everyone who met him never knew the real Larry and all of the things that he accomplished in his life. He was an artist and a musician. He would um, write his own music, sing along to it. He sculpted, he made jewelry. Um, there wasn't anything really that he couldn't do. Well, let's just say that things were never dull around Larry, never. He even uh, designed a swimming pool. Um, it was an above ground because we couldn't have an in-ground pool. There was so much ledge in Connecticut. You'd see him out there in the morning and he was like um, designing a piece of the deck that went off this way. and. By the time he finished the whole thing, it was this piece of artwork. He was the gifted and talented um, teacher for several years for middle school children. He would lead them rather than direct them because um, he was kind of that type of person himself. You know, for him to make the decision to retire was very difficult because he loved it so much. We've got some funny, hilarious memories, thank God. But if I start to think about that, then you think about the loss. And that's not what you want to think about. You want to think about the gains. If you didn't lay the old Larry to rest, in a way, I think it would be um, unfair to the present Larry because he is he is what he is right now and you can't hold 
him against the old Larry. Nobody could stand up to the old Larry. He was like bigger than life. When you see the reality of, of who they were, that, that can be a pretty heartbreaking thing to, to come to means with. But you can see that music is important to him. It's a huge part of his life. And it was a big part of his life before, and he wants it to be a big part of his life now. So he actually reaches out to me and tries to find ways to participate in the music rather than just listening. And when he first moved here, his wife even said that you never would see him singing at the other place he lived. And now he's singing, he's playing the piano, he's, you know, he is musically gifted and has those skills. So when I sit down at a piano with him, I can actually teach him a chord and he can pick it up and he can learn it. And he wants to learn it and he wants to pick it up because this is something in his life that he was proud of and he was accomplished at and he was skilled at and he wants to have that back. He wants to have the control back. So I, I really love working with Larry too, just because I feel like it's bringing back his self-confidence in himself and his abilities. I think she felt as though there was a, a chance to bring part of him back. And something inside him must be um, getting fulfilled. And I really attribute it to um, opening up that window, or reopening that window to the music inside him. The happiness, the, um, the cheerfulness that surrounds him. Um, I don't feel bad when I leave and I, and I see him and I wave goodbye. It's such a gift to be able to bring to them the joy and the excitement of music and that they can come to life again and, and show that they're still people and they still have personalities. And just, It's my job to find, find how to reach them and how to bring them back to life again. You know, when you listen to that and that individual, Larry, had a seizure, and it is actually, that was audio from a video, he was almost like he had Parkinson's. And when you have elderly patients who are either debilitated by stroke or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, or you have youngsters who have emotional distress or have been sexually abused, which causes them to totally go into themselves, music therapy is a way to break into, as, as she was saying, opening a window or reopening a window into these individuals' lives and bring them back to reality. What have some of your experiences, I know we're getting ready to go to break here shortly, but uh, what have been some experiences that you've had that you can relate to what you just heard? I can talk to, about a client that we started working with in January at Nazareth College in our York Wellness and Rehabilitation Institute. And this was a gentleman who was in his mid-50s, and he had a traumatic brain injury, excuse me, <coughs> <clears throat> from a car accident when he was 15 years old. Wow. So he's been in a wheelchair since he's 15. He had been referred, he had been t getting speech therapy at Nazareth in the fall semester, and the speech therapist, uh, upon interviewing his family, found out he had a great love for uh, bands like Cheap Trick and um, other bands of that era. And so we brought him in for music therapy, and it is just remarkable that you hear you have this man 
who's had a traumatic brain injury for over 40 years, and he can fill in words of songs that he loves. He loved the Buffalo Bill song. Uh, the bills make me want to shout, kick my heels up and shout. And we would do, the bills make me want to, and he'd go, shout. <laughs> so for somebody who has very little volitional speech, that's exciting to see see him. And he would use eyes ga- eye gaze for we would give him a choice of songs. Um, and he would make a choice. And it would it when you see that somebody who is in a wheelchair who has very little movement of uh, he could only move his right arm a little bit, has no speech, for him to sing a song on pitch, sing a note. I mean, for him, and then he'd break out in a big smile. So I can relate to what that interview was talking about. It's And for family members, I mean, for some people, they'll go, okay, so it's one word. Um, for family members, it's everything. Mm-hmm. One of the um, research studies that uh, I've been involved with at the University of Rochester Medical Center was using music therapy with um, children who are getting Botox injections, uh, not for cosmetic purposes, but uh, because they have contractures. They often have developmental disabilities and they have muscle contractures throughout their body. And the Botox injections are intended to help uh, ease the muscle contractures so that when they work with OTs and PTs, it's easier and more effective. But the shots hurt and they get a lot of them. Um, Every few months they'll come in and they make as many as six or eight shots. Um, And it hurts, of course. Um, So they ask us to do do a music therapy protocol that the music therapist I developed with her and she implemented um, to get them through this. And uh, the one young lady we have on video got two shots and during the whole preparation in the shot period, she sit, the music therapist simply sings with her, gets her to sing, they're singing together and we have this on video of her singing right through the process and when they get all done, the therapist asks her, did you feel the shots? And she said, no, she didn't feel them. So wow. um, it doesn't get any better than that when you can do it without them knowing what's going on. So. Wow. We've been talking to Brian and Leslie Hunter. They are longtime music therapists and educators, professors of music therapy at a variety of places, Nazareth College, Eastman School of Music, and they are here to talk to us about music therapy. And we stopped before the hour, and we're getting ready to talk about research. And tell us some of the research that you've been involved with, uh, whether it's adolescent or traumatic brain injury or elderly. Tell us some of the things that music therapy is doing out in the research world. Well, I can speak from my experience working in um, a county cooperative um, in the public schools. Because I supervised music therapy interns, and uh, Cynthia Briggs talked a little bit about the requirement that all music therapists, after they finish their four years of school, they have an internship. And so I supervised interns, and I supervised them through the school year, which in New York starts the day after Labor Day and runs through the third week of June. So it's a really long school year. But I would require each of my interns to do a research study. And uh, one of the research studies that really stands out in my memory is the one that was created to help students with autism make a transition from their classroom to the school bus at the end of the day. If you're not familiar with people who have autism, 
transitions are a very challenging time. It's difficult to get from one class to the next class. It's difficult to transition from uh, doing a puzzle in the classroom to going to lunch or going from um, music therapy to uh, physical education. There's just, uh, it's challenging. So the first thing we did was uh, we identified that this was a troubling time for students and we had our behavior analysis analysts uh, come up with uh, some of the what we would call the behaviors that students express to show their discomfort and this could be flopping on the floor it could be screaming it could be biting pinching but those were all behaviors that they were seeing and so we wrote a song um, that had walking and and the lyrics were i'm going to walk 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 i'm going to walk walk and walk some more i'm going to walk 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 right up to the school bus door I've got safe hands, safe feet, a quiet voice, so it's all complete. And then we would repeat the first voice. So we would actually accompany the students from their classroom door to the school bus door playing the song on our guitar. And we had it so the tempo was for a good walking speed. It wasn't too fast. It wasn't too slow. And the students started to internalize this song and were starting to sing it to themselves. And so we had people taking data as they walked, and we found out that the students that had this accompaniment in our experimental group had less of those explosive behaviors than our control group that didn't have any of this music. And what was so, I think, just thrilling to me was um, the following year, I just heard one of these students singing this song on their own as they went to the bus. Um, so they had internalized it, they had generalized it, and they walked just without any incident. So, That's great. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was one of those things that when you do the research right and you see those kind of results, it's very gratifying. Wow. So one of the other studies that we were asked to uh, consider at, at the University of Rochester Medical Center was um, with a group of patients who are uh, c coming off of a variety of treatments but end up being on mechanical ventilation for whatever reason. Most of the time people go on to mechanical ventilation and then they come off of it without too much of a problem. But there is a small but very substantive uh, number of patients for whom that becomes difficult. Um, and it's usually because they get very anxious about the mechanical ventilation stopping because they're told not to bother, not to touch this. This is what's keeping them breathing, what's keeping them alive. Um, and then they get very anxious about stopping it <clears throat> and to the point where they can't, they're what's called they're difficult to wean. Uh, and so the, the medical staff will begin working with them on establishing goals to stay off of the, of the ventilation for a period of time and, and to try to get them to the point of being completely free of it. Um, and it's usually because they're just really anxious. Um, and interestingly enough, the treatment sometimes for the anxiety is to, is to use some sort of uh, a sedative uh, to calm them down. But the unfortunate thing is that sometimes that suppresses their respiration. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to wean somebody off mechanical ventilation, the last thing you want them to do is to have less of a rate of respiration. You want them to actually you want it to be robust, not the other direction. So sometimes the, the pharmaco pharmacological intervention is sort of working against your goal. So it's a perfect spot for something like music therapy, which uh, we know can help calm and reduce anxiety, uh, going back to breaking that fear-anxiety cycle that I was talking about earlier. 
And so, again, we developed a protocol with a music therapist there um, who would do a variety of things, including getting them to sing, uh, getting them to do conducting of the music, with their, getting their arms involved like they're the conductor while the, the therapist was performing something. Um, and we had some really remarkable uh, individual results with um, individuals who are, who are very difficult to wean, who with one or two music therapy sessions were able to come off the vent uh, and be done with it. Wow. Singing with a vent? <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> that would be hard. Yeah, well, not, not necessarily producing all the sound, but my, perhaps mouthing gotcha. the words gotcha. and, and okay. being engaged with the therapist. Really, yeah. uh, hooking back into memories of what music does to us, you know, music calms the savage beast, or, you know, you find yourself, I find myself sometimes waking up and a song is moving through my mind, and it's might be one that I've listened to the day before. It might be something from the past completely. I'm like, okay, where did that come from? It came from now, it, uh, Brian, you've done some research with dreaming and music therapy, or was I was I dreaming? I that? think you were dreaming. That. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but but Must this be whole Brian this, this, the, but this whole anxiety piece, even you know, goes back also to what was really the catalyst for the development of the profession historically, and that was the treatment uh, of post-World War I and then particularly post-World War II veterans. Right. Uh, and the, you mentioned PTSD or, or shell shock earlier um, in the hour, um, where volunteers were coming into play and to sing with, with, with patients, with the veterans, and the results were remarkable in terms of what they saw in terms of anxiety, uh, behavioral issues and promoting movement in, in the case where physical movement was, was also needed, um, so much so that they wanted to start hiring musicians, and then they found out that they it's a good idea to hire them, but they needed some education, and that gave birth to the curriculum, right. the college's curriculum, which which started in the late 40s. But it was it was that whole anxiety piece, and and you know this is in an era when uh, when uh, you know the observed effect of music was very strong at the same time when some of the state of the art of of mental health treatment was was ice pick lobotomies, right. and that was what was going on at state of the art. So something like music that could deliver an effect with a whole lot less um, intrusiveness was was uh, paid a lot of attention to. It's what gave birth to the to the profession. Very interesting. Do you either one of you know is music therapy being used with our current veterans who have come back mm-hmm. from the war? Because PTSD yes. is a huge thing it's with them right now. It's a huge thing. Yes, yes, it is. There, there are music therapists. Uh, first of all, there are a number of music therapists in the um, in the VA system, and in fact, again, as a profession, some of the first music therapists were a part of the VA system, and that continues to today. The American Music Therapy Association has had uh, has done some work also with um, with not just veterans, but but, but with active duty. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, military folks, so yes, there is work going on in there, and it is and it is a huge need, and there is a need for more of that certainly. Now you mentioned the American Music Therapy Association, and folks out there in listener land, musictherapy.org, musictherapy.org. You can check that out. It's uh, the website's just like wow, it's a little overwhelming for me. Uh, there's a lot to read. You can go crazy with that to your heart's content. But musictherapy.org, and I wanted to talk. A little bit, uh, Leslie and Brian, about an association and the importance of an association in a field like music therapy. How important is that? What role does it play? 
And I know, Brian, uh, you being a past president and being involved on the board of the association, you have a different kind of insight into that. Yeah, it's, it's really critical because the, the development of the profession was because, happened beginning in the United States um, in 1950 because actually other music associations like Music Teachers National Association and, and the Music Educators Association, the Music Industry Council, all had intense interest in music therapy uh, and all had committees about music therapy. That's how strong the interest was, but nobody quite knew what to do with it until finally um, MTNA said, we're going we're gonna to sponsor getting an association started just for music therapy, and they did which began in 1950 with the National Association for Music Therapy. And, it, and that's when we really look at the profession beginning because the association began to work at standards development. So education development of standards, clinical training standards, eventually the first credential um, as a registered music therapist was developed. So the association does all that kind of work. And then also uh, public relations work, government relations work, um, to get the word out about what music therapy is. And today, that is continuing with uh, collaborations like with the Kennedy Center um, and um, with, with VIPs, celebrities who, who want to support music therapy. The association is sort of the, the focal point for all of that. And then, the, as Dr. Briggs mentioned early in the earlier hour, the whole notion of moving towards licensure, which has happened in a few states, um, we're working on developing it in, in other states. Um, in New York State, um, we have a licensed creative arts therapy credential that covers not only music therapy, but art and dance therapy as well. Um, so that is developing, and, and again, that comes out of the work of the association. And the association also provides opportunities for continuing music therapy education, because once you have your MTBC, which is Music Therapy Board Certified, which is a credential you receive after you pass your national board exam, you need to accrue 100 CMTEs in five years. So you need to stay up to date with the research, and um, the association provides opportunities to, to get that continuing education, and also uh, they sponsor research, which is so essential. Now, what's the avenue and field like as it relates to if uh, someone wants to go become a music therapist, what's their outlook for job placement, et cetera, like that? There's more jobs than there are people. Yeah, the, we, we don't, my colleagues uh, um, who direct music therapy programs around the country and other uh, universities, um, most of them, as we're discussing with things with each other, we'll talk about sometimes not having a student done and ready to, to be in a, a place in a job in their area. Um, and we tell our students at Nazareth College, both undergraduate and graduate, that if you're willing to go to where there's a job being advertised, there are jobs there. And, and there are, in some areas, jobs that are going unfilled at times. So we're working hard to try to stop that, fill that gap. But, um, you know, there are, this is an example, 5,000 general hospitals, you know, in the United States. All of them have intensive care units. All of them could benefit from, um, from having music therapy. And... You know, we don't have that many music therapists, you know. So, and that's one area. That's just general hospital. You have the whole area of dementia, and you have the veterans, and you have, and just the list goes on. Now, is that something that you need a master's degree to be able to do, or can you start with a bachelor's degree? You can start with a bachelor's degree. And, and for listeners out there, I would just say if you're listening to this and you know an individual 
who has a love and an interest and a skill in music and also has a love and an interest in helping other people, music therapy is an excellent profession for you to consider. And I think one of the frustrations I've had as a music therapist is seeing that our numbers are, are small and I realize it's because you have to start training to be a music therapist when you're in a young person, when you're, uh, Cynthia said, starting piano at six. I started playing flute when I was in fourth grade. It's not like you can show up at college and have no musical experience and decide to become a music therapist. That training has to be key to building that foundation upon which you use the music as a tool to reach a variety of clients. So I. I think what really needs to happen is music educators, guidance counselors, they all need to know that you should encourage people to have music experiences as they're a younger person because then we'll have more of a pool of candidates who would be interested in pursuing this. And people even pursue this later in life, do they not? Oh, yes, they do. They do. We, uh, uh, Brian has had students that played in a rock band, and at age 40, they decided to become a music therapist. We often have um, students who have music degrees, undergraduate music degrees in music education or performance or uh, other areas, and then decide to come back and do music therapy, and that's that's entirely possible for that to happen. And they're often, elect, uh, they're often excellent music therapists because they've had enough world experiences that they say, I have this these musical chops but I'm tired of playing in the lounge at 11 o'clock every Friday night. I want something different. And I see that music is powerful, and I want to have, I want to see that in my life. Often they will come in and then do what's called a master's equivalency uh, degree and, uh, and get back into music therapy that way. So, Lots of folks do that. So I asked Cindy this question, where do you see music therapy in 20 years? Uh, you know, think about that for about two seconds, okay? Time's up. <laughs> and uh, whoever wants to go first can go first, uh, and whoever wants to go last can go last. But it's it's something that sometimes we get a little force for the trees, and we don't step back. And I'm sure if uh, Ethier Gaston would look at where music therapy is, the father of music therapy, where it is today, he would might be astonished. He might be like, well, how come you haven't done this? I, I don't know. Well, considering that when Ether Gaston was helping to pioneer the field, music therapy was really a mental health profession mm-hmm. uh, at that moment in time. And given now that we are, music therapists are working with uh, a, a extraordinary array and diverse uh, continuum of, of diagnoses and symptoms, uh, that range from the neonatal intensive care unit and premature infants across the entire lifespan to hospice and palliative care and care for the elderly. Um, at the other end of the lifespan, he would be pretty astonished. <laughs> uh, and music therapists work in all the places and institutions where all those people are served. Uh, so that list is huge as well. So he would be he would be pretty amazed. Um, I, the, there are challenges, though, uh, and things for us to look at in the, in the next 20 years, and that's one of those is filling some of that vacuum and that gap I was talking about earlier 
Um, <clears throat> that's one. Uh, another one is the, the issue around uh, credentialing and uh, reimbursement. We have some of the music that reimbursement is, it happens in some instances and in some clients. That is a continuing challenge to continue to work on the reimbursement piece. And I think the other thing to watch carefully is now is what happens to music therapy and telehealth as a result of this COVID experience. It's, it has forced music therapists to do that work who would have, we would have not chosen ever to do it that way, but it's happening. And I think it, there will be a lasting impact for that. It'll be interesting to see what that is. My response to that question is that I think in the next 20 years, with the advancement of uh, brain imagery, there's going to be so much that's discovered about how music is processed in all these different parts of our brain. We already know that music is processed in both hemispheres, which is why people like Gabby Giffords, who had that horrific gunshot wound, was able to use music to regain speech, to build new pathways in the brain. I feel like through MRI imaging and CAT scans and just more developments in actually being understand the neurology and the processing of music in the brain, music is going to become more of a tool that people decide we need to use music. We need to have a music therapist come in here and help us with this client. The plasticity of the brain and neuroscience, the development of that, and we kind of hinted on that a little bit in our discussion with, with uh, Cynthia, is the sky's the limit there. I Absolutely. think we've just begun to t- tap into a little bit about what we know. Uh, some closing thoughts. Uh, again, I want to mention uh, to listeners the American Music Therapy Association website, musictherapy.org, musictherapy.org. Brian, some closing thoughts. So it's, uh, as, as a longtime colleague and friend of ours uh, who's recently passed away with uh, uh, Clive Robbins, who developed a improvisational approach to music therapy, as he said in an interview a few years ago, <clears throat> it's an exciting time to be in music therapy. So I'll quote, I'll leave that quote from Clive with you. Uh, it is an exciting time. Um, we have seen in my 40 years in the profession, which started here in St. Louis at Maryville College, Maryville University now, um, we have seen the growth in that 40 years enormously, both in terms of the clinical practice, the recognition, the uh, government recognition. Uh, at one point, we had a Senate hearing in 1991 in front of the, uh, the Senate Special Committee on Aging about music therapy for older Americans. Um, we've seen that kind of recognition. We've seen state licensure. We've seen expansion of clinical practice, and we've seen the research base being built. So as Clive said, it's, it's an exciting time to be in music therapy. And my closing thought is, uh, in 1971, I went to the University City Library to find the one book on music therapy by Juliet Alvin. Um, now there are, are probably 500 textbooks about music therapy. So just to see the expansion of knowledge and to see music therapy in the St. Louis area grow, as well as across the United States and the world, has been very gratifying. I imagine... You know, being in the infancy stages of music therapy when really kind of when you guys got involved and seeing the growth, exponential growth of what's going on should be very satisfying to your careers. Yeah, and it was early on. Um, We're not quite pioneers, but we were in the early years. I mean, in 1974, I entered as a student, so the profession in terms of 1950 was, was only 24 years old at that time. And now we're getting ready to celebrate year 70, so... And speak about 
how many music therapists were in Rochester, New York, oh, when we moved yeah. there. So, in, uh, and this this happens has happened in a number of cities, including St. Louis, where a program starts and then music therapy develops a lot. That happened in St. Louis after the Maryville program in Rochester. When we went there, the program at Nazareth was only three years old. Um, there were six music therapists <clears throat> at that time, unless when I went. And they're now well over 100 wow. in the Rochester area. It's the second biggest area of music therapists in New York State outside of the city area itself, New York City area. And that happens. It's happened in a number of cities, including St. Louis. A very interesting area, folks. We want you to continue to listen to our show because in the next uh, segment, we're going to be talking to Rachel Ebeling, the executive director of the Angel Band Project, and you don't want to miss this segment. If you miss any of our shows of St. Louis In Tune, you can go to SoundCloud and punch into the search engine, In Tune, KWRH, or you can catch us on Apple Podcasts also. 